Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are going to be doing the first of a two-parter on Paul Tillich. I have already called this episode Good Tillich. I bet you can guess what the next one will be, but we'll get into that later. This episode concerns some speeches that Paul Tillich uh, recorded and had broadcast in German in the middle of the Second World War, 1942, 1943, roughly, um, uh, to speak to his fellow countrymen, his fellow Germans, well, yeah, I I found this. Um, I was not aware of this when I wrote my book before Auschwitz. Um, I don't know how it escaped me. It had been translated into English, uh, I think, in the 1970s. And but I discovered uh, in uh, that it was very. It's really relatively little known. People don't know about it, and. Um, so I, I ordered the book and read it uh, in the past year or so, and I was quite impressed with it uh, as an example of the earlier Tillich's uh, political theology. And maybe this is a, a appropriate, Sarah, for me to give a little bit of background on what I mean by that. Please do. Tillich was, um, fled Nazi Germany in 1933. Um he would have been undoubtedly arrested and sent to a concentration camp because he was identified as a socialist and a sympathizer with Jews and things like that. Um, but his early thought uh, through the 1920s was a kind of a doctrine of the kairos, the Greek word for the special time, the kairos of God's visitation. And for Tillich, this was a very important concept. Uh, political expectation, in Tillich's view, looked forward to the time, um, not literally the time of the end, uh, or the end of time, rather, but rather the uh, deliteralized, the uh, time of the end breaking in to historical uh, situations which would then the divine uh, uh, eruption into um, secular history in the Kairos would then put people in a crossroads of decision um, for um, greater justice, love, and mercy. Uh, That's a very um, uh, simplistic explanation of uh, Paul Tillich's early political theology. By the way, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, acknowledged his debt to Tillich uh, in this respect, that he had learned a lot from Tillich about a political theology. It it sounds like he was, Tillich was trying to import some of the, the fruit of learning of apocalyptic biblical studies into the domain of theology, and it probably also um, coordinated well with what was happening like in a existentialist philosophical movements as well. Is that right? I think so, and you know, he he always acknowledged the work of the early Bart uh, as as prophetic, but he um, always also disagreed 
with Bart, which he thought, who he thought was speaking literalistically uh, about uh, what he would call biblical symbols. So he takes a Tillich takes a very interesting position between Bart and Boltman. He says that Boltman is right uh, to insist that you cannot take the biblical symbols literally without destroying them, and that's a statement against Bart, or evidently against Bart. Uh, but he also criticizes Boltman's program of demythologizing and saying that it destroys the um, the symbol. So uh, Tillich takes a position in between Bart and Boltman with his peculiar notion of the religious symbol. Uh, and that is what the Kairos is. It's a symbol uh, of, of pregnant times in human history when the, um, the biblical kingdom of God can actually advance uh, human history forward, um, in any case laying upon uh, human beings uh, a crisis, a decision, uh, uh, a social and political decision. So Tillich's last book that he wrote rapidly, it never got published in Germany. The Gestapo blocked it. Was titled "The Socialist Decision," and in it he's trying to explain to his um, friends on the political left that they underestimate the mythical power of Nazism and its appeal uh, to the atomized masses uh, uh, of the German people. And by, because they underestimate its mythological power, you know, blut und boot and blood and soil, uh, um, um, calling up all these powers uh, that... Uh, the German population felt they had been estranged from. The left underestimated the pull, the um, popular appeal of Nazism. And he was then arguing then for this religious socialism against uh, Marxism-Leninism, hardcore Marxism-Leninism, arguing that social a decision for socialism for Tillich meant a society of greater justice, peace, and mercy um, that only could be grounded with an equally mythological uh, or religious foundation. And that's what Tillich was arguing. Well, I think listeners who are acquainted with my well-known aversion to all forms of dispensationalism and millennialism can feel the hackles that have arisen on my <laughs> my flesh listening to all this. But I, I do see the point that if... If the, the masses are susceptible to a secular or possibly demonic millennialism or new dispensation, what is going to have the force to draw them away from it? Uh, probably not. A, Come on, guys, let's just let's just keep steady, incremental progress. You know, let's let's test things out carefully, see how it goes, <laughs> make reversible decisions like nobody gets excited about that. And, you know, I have to admit, even, even for me, the, the whole... Um, uh, 1933 to 1945 crisis period in world history. Very hard to avoid uh, e even the sternest anti-dispensationalist like me feeling like this this was a, a crisis and decision point for humanity. But of course, that's what was said about the Bolshevik revolution. And that's can be said about so many unworthy causes. So maybe maybe this is a case where you have no choice but to fight fire with fire. I don't know what I think about that. 
Well, I think what might make you a little bit more sympathetic to Tillich's perspective is that at the beginning of this book, the very the very first broadcast he makes, which is dated March 31st, 1942, Tillich lifts up a question that he says is of decisive significance for a German spiritual and political destiny, namely what? The question of the Jewish people. Now, why would Tillich make that the significant question? Because, he argues, the, the calling, the vocation of the Jewish people is to bear witness to the God of justice and to the unity of all humanity and to the God who is alone God, Tillich writes, or doesn't write, he's, he's preaching on the radio to Germans to the God who is alone God, beyond the gods of the nation, beyond all national values and ideals. That's a, you know, uh, something like Second Isaiah being broadcast into Nazi Germany <laughs> in 1942. Now, he acknowledges something very interesting in this connection. He acknowledges that the Jewish people have again and again forgotten and betrayed this calling of theirs. And he says, no one knows it better than the Jews themselves. And in fact, nowhere is it more evident than in the entire Old Testament. Now, Sarah, what I find so interesting about this is that this is precisely the early prophetic Luther's polemic against spiritual security. Uh, like in the early commentary on Romans, where Luther writes, this is the true people of God who continually bring the judgment of the cross to bear upon themselves. On themselves, not on the other guys. And that's there in the early Luther's attack on spiritual security. And for Tillich, it's the great achievement of Judaism, the prophetic message. And he says its sharpness is directed against Jewish self-confidence, just like it is against every other national self-confidence. The prophetic message of Judaism, however, is being rejected and combated today in Nazi Germany, Tillich argues. So that's why the Jewish question is spiritually important for the future of the Germans. Does that make you feel a little better about Tillich? Uh, yeah, no. the the point The point is excellent. It's it's the um, yeah fighting dispensationalism with dispensationalism. We're not going to solve that here, so we don't need to spend any more time on it. No. What what I I find actually really fascinating about these these essays of Tillich's or broadcasts rather, the Nazi rhetoric is that the problem with the Jewish people is that they are dirty blood, right? They're of this inferior race and you have to expel them from the healthy body of Arianism in order to, you know, be strong and virile as a nation. So the the rhetoric is highly racialized. But what Tillich is saying here is, is no, you don't get away with that because um, whatever you may say about the blood, what you really hate is that uh, the Jewish prophetic word exposes the false 
the false ideology that is Nazism. It isn't just that you're getting rid of the blood. You have to silence the voice. I think that's what I, I find very powerful about Tillich here. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, a little bit later in the broadcast, he, uh, he identifies this Jewish uh, tradition, prophetic Judaism, with the witness of the first Christians. And he, he tells the radio audience that the first Christians sought to take humanity beyond their world of the fighting gods, the battle of the gods, national gods, one against the other, to something higher, to the one God and the one people of God beyond all tribes and nations. So that's a kind of a step towards a human universalism, I suppose, or something like that, which incidentally is why Tillich could so easily I uh, relate to um, a certain reading of Greek philosophy as also moving towards a kind of universal humanity and a universal rationality, even though that for us today is pretty questionable. Um, nonetheless, uh, Tillich... Um, actually, you know, I could actually explain here. In the 1920s, Tillich was closely associated with the Jewish philosophers of the Frankfurt School, Theodor Adorno and, um, uh, is it Max Horkheimer, I think, and also um, Herbert Marcuse. These are all <laughs> secularized Jews. Critical theory comes out of them, right? Yes, critical theory, and exactly right. And uh, Tillich, when he was talking about Con, uh, the, the witness of the Jews in our midst, uh, that's who he's thinking of, these colleagues that he has in uh, religious socialism. So, I mean, I absolutely, you know, uh, can uh, understand what Tillich is doing in asserting the one God, one humanity, universal principle against this highly racialized super race Aryan ideology. But I think this is the beginning of a, a theme we're going to return to again and again as we work our way through these broadcasts, which is that for all of Tillich's insightful prophetic force, I kept seeing the, the Achilles heel kept exposing itself to me again and again. <laughs> and and uh, and maybe, again, it's a mistake to, to take these broadcasts as anything other than tactical. But as much as I appreciate the, the universal one God thing of the first Christians, I can't help but also hear a, and this is an improvement over the Jews with their own, you know, local God that then they blew up to universal proportion and that the Christians were the ones who really got the universality. And that is a very old meme in religious studies of the natural superiority of Christianity and, of course, especially Protestant Christianity, you know, that, it, you know, the a typical sort of like the Jews got a good start, but then we Christians finished the job. And um, and again, uh, understand the tactical purpose, but I throughout these broadcasts, I kept thinking, well, I yeah, I see what you're doing there, but I think that's going to you're, you're going to bring some things home to roost that you aren't bargaining on. So I don't know. I think that that's partly the genre. Maybe we should talk a little bit more about the fact that these are propaganda speeches and they are tactically deployed. Well, of course, Tillich is a Christian. He's not a Jew, but he's he's lifting up the legacy of, of prophetic Judaism. Much in the same way that in the United States, a figure like Abraham Joshua Heschel, 
uh, represented prophetic Judaism and aligned himself with Martin Luther King uh, during the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Um, so, I mean, yes, to us today, it can sound a little bit tacitly supersessionist, even to use an expression like Judeo-Christianity. But I think that in the 1930s, especially broadcasting to Nazi Germany, asserting something like Judeo-Christianity was precisely an attack on the whole German Christian ideology, whose agenda was to de-Judaize the Christian right, faith, of course. right? To yeah. eradicate Jewish influence. Right, right, right. Yeah, again, so I, I think let, let's just take a moment then. So these are our tactical speeches. They are meant for their time. They are meant for a certain audience. Um, so I, I think here it's interesting to notice uh, or to, to mention, I, I did not know this, but during the Second World War, the United States had... Well, of course, it had basically its Department of Propaganda, right? But it turns out it had kind of two facets in the Department of Propaganda. So there is the one department that was restricted to truth. <laughs> like their specific mandate was you can only say things that are actually true. And that is where uh, Tillich was recruited to be the, the in the truth department of propaganda. Then there was another department of propaganda whose sole purpose is to like demoralize and defeat the enemy and anything is is game there. Um, I was fascinated. This makes a certain kind of sense. It almost seems like a good sign if your Department of Propaganda can actually distinguish between true and false and understand the different purposes they might serve. But uh, anyway, that that was very um, uh, eye-opening for me. But then, so but the point is still that Tillich, as a, you know, German-born, uh, you know, German national, even a refugee, I wasn't he, didn't he fight or was a chaplain in the First World War? So he's a veteran of the other side. And, you know, right. he's, he's now in the U.S. He's obviously a native, fluent, literary speaker of German. And he is recruited by the government that is at war with his his at least home nation, if he would certainly not call Nazism, the, the, the National Socialist regime, his home governments, to um, speak directly to the people and try to incite them to um, betrayal and treason against a government that does not deserve their allegiance. So I have to say, I just that that too, that reminded me very much, uh, again, uh, it's you know not as dramatic as Bonhoeffer's participation in the assassination plot, but um, it's, it's, there's, a, there's still an unsettling feeling about this, um, well, it's, you know, what the circumstances force him to, but yes, he is, he is, his sole purpose in these broadcasts is to speak to the German people and get them to commit treason against, again, a, a government, a regime that does not deserve their their loyalty. But that is the explicit purpose of these speeches. Well, sure. It's, it, it, he's persuading them. Of course, I would say uh, he's not manipulating them with untruth. He's persuading them with, with uh, analysis. So let's get into that. I mean, because I think that one of the most fascinating things about the whole uh, broad, series of broadcasts is that Tillich consistently echoed, quite literally, the prophets of Israel to interpret the, the judgment that's coming down on Nazi Germany. Um, and uh, again, you have to understand the double provocation here. 
He's both uh, telling the audio, his German audience, you're losing and you're going to lose and you deserve to lose. And the reason you're losing is exactly what the prophets of Israel said to the ancient Israel when it defected from the covenant. So here's an example from May of 1943. Um, he lifts up the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, Jeremiah took on himself the difficult work of foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem. So he was hated and un unpopular with the Jews, just as he would be today with the Nazis. In that respect, Tillich continues, the ancient Jews and today's National Socialists are completely alike. Did you hear that? <laughs> the ancient Jews and today's National Socialists are completely alike, that they put up with no one who sees and announces defeat to their imperial projects. At that time, uh, they were called prophets of disaster, and today the Nazis call them defeatists. The ones who see defeat today are the successors, till it concludes, of the great prophets. I just want to put in here that this is this is meant to anger Nazis. It is not meant to anger Jews or that their ancient ancestors are being compared to Nazis. The direction of the comparison is very important here. Yes, but you remember earlier Tillich had said this is the glory of prophetic Judaism, that it brings the divine judgment upon its own people. It doesn't deflect the judgment. And and so, again, you know, you have to theologically sympathize with Tillich to uh, understand uh, that this is not some kind of backhanded anti-Semitism, unless you want to call Amos and Hosea anti-Semites. <laughs> Right, right. No, I just think it's important to say because there, there is a, definitely a sensitivity around here. And al although I've only overheard a little bit of it, I know that there is extremely contentious discussion within, you know, Judaism since the 40s of trying to understand why did this happen to us? And it's not because they were like Nazis. That's the only point I wanted to clarify in case sure, anyone misunderstood. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Okay. And, you know, in this connection, sir, the other thing I find fascinating is that Tillich, surprisingly, for a person whose reputation is as basically a neoliberal theologian, uh, is unabashed in pronouncing divine retribution, divine wrath, just like the prophets of Israel. Yeah, let me read a couple extracts on, on that because I think it's it's such a, a powerful thing. So this is November of 1943. He says that uh, the retribution coming upon Nazi Germany will be unparalleled in the history of the world. A retribution like that found only in the divine words of wrath spoken by the prophets concerning guilty nations. It is a question of recognizing what is truly going on the divine judgment on human guilt and the guilt of the nation that as a whole has allowed itself to be made guilty and the destruction of those who preach destruction and practice it to an extent never before possible. Yeah, that, that there is a neoliberal theologian who does not shy away from pronouncing divine judgment on real human guilt. Yeah, and I mean, that's going to lead us to a very interesting set of questions about complicity and collective guilt and so forth that Tillich also addresses in the course of these broadcasts. 
Yeah, I think actually, let's just say who, who does who does he hope to be reaching here? So th- these are being broadcast on you know what what is a, a still available of the you know the radio bandwidths into into Germany. So it's possible for anybody to tune in and hear. But obviously, he isn't thinking that he's going to change Himmler's heart uh, if he hears this or Goring. He's he's really aiming towards the the German who knows in his bones and guts how sick and wrong national socialism is, but hasn't had the courage to um, oppose it or has feared too much for his own skin. Or even in some cases, Tillich addresses those who have been a bit opportunistic, who have, you know, um, right. uh, pinched their nose and said, OK, this stinks, but it'll help me get ahead in the world. Uh, that, that sounds like a consummately um, American sin to me as well. <laughs> But, but uh, those are the people he's trying to reach with these appeals. Yeah, and he his exhortations are pretty ferocious. Uh, they during are. an advent, uh, yeah, during an advent season broadcast, uh, he talks about the theme of judgment that's involved in Advent, and then he says, "Whoever continues to hear this theme," and then he says, "and has not yet participated." in the blood guilt of National Socialism, should renounce National Socialism even today. Many of you are standing on the boundaries. You don't want to have anything to do with the crimes of National Socialism, but you also don't have the courage to say no. Try try that on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Well, maybe that that's why you want to say it over the radio with a big ocean between you, because, uh, yeah. Yeah. C.S. Lewis has made the, the great observation that cowardice is the only sin that contains no pleasure in itself. You know, like all other sins, you, you get something out of them. Uh, cowardice inspires only shame. There's no pleasure in it. And yet for all that, it is one of the most widespread. And yeah, I think that's that's what Tillich really lays his finger on here is, is the cowardice of you know something's wrong and you know you shouldn't go along with it and you just can't bring yourself to do anything about it anyway. And so, you know, the bullies and the evildoers get more and more power because you just would never at any point say, no, I'm not going along with that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right about that. And I think that the message is not being addressed to the bullies. Uh, in fact, Tillich makes that clear when he, in these Advent messages, when he uh, talks about the possibility of redemption. Uh, and this is a very interesting passage. And to me, it's the right way of parsing law and gospel. He says, Advent gives hope even to the wrongdoer. Then he adds, to be sure, not for this life in which the chastening judgment falls on them, but for eternity in which there is forgiveness and salvation, even for the most grievous sinner. Then he concludes, Such a message won't be understood by those who rule the German nation today. They don't want to know anything about that which lies beyond death and which can give hope even to the criminal. So this reminds me of the two thieves on the cross with Jesus. See, because Jesus does not grant the wish that they be delivered from their temporal punishment. Um, 
he rather endures to the end with them the temporal punishment. Uh, But he says to the penitent thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And so you see this kind of uh, way of relating law and gospel does not say Jesus took the rap for me, I get off scot-free. That is not the theology of the atonement that Tillich is working with at all. It's rather that there is, and this is again somewhat surprising for his reputation as a neoliberal theologian, a kind of transcendent salvation and redemption of the wrongdoer who is penitent, actually penitent, uh, full well not acknowledging that the bullies and murderers will have nothing to do with it. So it's appealing to the relief of the the coward and the complicit right now to acknowledge guilt and, and take on whatever consequences because of a faith of a greater justice and a greater mercy in the life to come. But that means you actually have to believe in the life to come and in a merciful God who who really will take take away the guilt of the guilty in the life to come, but not without the, the purifying fire and the real world consequences of what happened on this earth. Right. So, that, Sarah, let's let's the other theme that we should talk about here for a little bit is, which I think is just so important the, and difficult too. The the themes of uh, moral complicity and of collective guilt. So, why don't you lead us off there? Yeah. Well, the, the, this is always the case in in war. Is is who who's the guilty? Who started this? And um, uh, where do we place the blame? And as is well known, one of the uh, root causes of the Second World War was the Treaty of Versailles at the end of the First World War that put all of the blame entirely on Germany, um, which has always baffled me because Austro-Hungary was pretty big player. That's where the whole thing started. But anyway, there was clearly this vengeful streak, especially in Clemenceau of France, that wanted to make sure that Germany alone was guilty. Germany was entirely guilty. Germany had this incredible war debt. And that was part of what created the horrible economic conditions that uh, made Hitler seem so attractive. Nevertheless, there really is guilt. And yes, the the Kaiser and the Germans really did wrong in the First World War. And certainly the the Third Reich is doing unbelievable wrong. So, But what does that mean then for people whose government goes in a radical direction that they don't necessarily support, uh, even if they haven't actively opposed? What what is the nature of the guilt that... um, that they are forced to share in. And I think this is this also to, you know, to hearken back to the prophets, this really disturbs modern people when they read prophetic literature and especially stories of, of like the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile and say, but, but, but why did all these innocent people have to suffer and die? It wasn't their fault. It's like, no, that's not how it works, though, in the way our world actually works. Collective guilt falls irrespective of uh, individual compliance or individual guilt or individual innocence or anything like that. So uh, on a, a very deep level, um, 
you know, emotionally, psychologically, philosophically, Tillich is trying to take up how do we think about this, you know, gigantic war between nations and war machines and what it has to do with with the ordinary people who have been caught up in it. Um, so he he uh, here's how he kind of says that that the the Germans were, I don't know, kind of suckered into going along with it. He uh, Tillich says the question of guilt must be answered because the ethical world order demands that the forces of destruction themselves be destroyed. In Germany, people frequently have the feeling that the question of guilt is a pretext to give the victors a good conscience for smashing the conquered to, to, to pieces. And uh, he says, by contrast, the, the, one of the ways the Nazi propaganda machine was so effective was by that they talked about the battle of those who have against those who have not, that there was this war of revolution of the proletariat against the capitalist nations, that the Nazi regime is, were the true progressives, Russia, America, and the British Commonwealths are all reactionaries, and that finally the reason why the Germans have gone to war is because the powers of reaction want to repress the progressive. A good reminder that at the time, Nazism depicted itself as forward-thinking and and progressive, not fascist and regressive in the sense that we usually mean it now. Yeah, that was a major burden of my book before Auschwitz, which I'm very happy to see confirmed here in Tillich's analysis. But I, 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 I think that it's also important here to see how Tillich looks at the genuine collective guilt that's involved in German complicity. And that's uh, not because they were suckered into it or just, you know, deceived by Hitler or something like that. Uh, this this statement from 1942, I think, is quite perceptive. Tillich uh, says to the German people in the radio broadcast, there was a moment in German history when many Germans believed that National Socialism represented the higher justice. They thought that the injustice of the last peace would be transformed into justice. They thought that the injustices of the social order, above all the continuous unemployment, would be overcome. They believed that German unity would be created on this basis, and that the just claims of Germany and the world would be fulfilled. Final thought, Tillich says, they gave National Socialism power because they believe that it would be the representative of a higher justice. I think that's a very insightful analysis. Dad, the, these kind of things always just chill me to the bone, because I fundamentally believe that it, with the very, very tiny exception of a few psychopaths out there, everybody acts pursuing what they believe to be good and right and just and fair. And you can be cataclysmically wrong in your judgment about what counts as good and right and just and fair. And I mean, the, the, this is it right here. I don't doubt that lots of Germans really thought, okay, finally, we're going to get somewhere. We're going to tackle all these terrible problems and overcome the injustices done to us and rise again as a people and, you know, do great things and, and bring our wonderful gifts to bear on the wider world. I'm sure they believe it and and in the process colluded with a evil that still remains outsized in our imagination even today and it, it, it's kind of useless to issue 
warnings. I mean, you have to, <laughs> and like tell like you have to name it when you see it. But there's something so I don't know, chillingly inevitable about this this human propensity to uh, to pursue evil, sincerely believing it to be good. Well, it's called self righteousness. It's called <laughs> it's called the righteousness. It's called human righteousness as opposed to divine righteousness in the theology of justification. Tillich here, I think, betrays his his kind of bone deep Lutheranism uh, here. Uh, when you when you believe that y- your atrocities are justified in the name of higher of a higher justice, I mean that's the license to do absolutely anything, isn't it? to ra- rationalize any, any any evil. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just saying it, it didn't start out with mass deportations of Jews to death camps, right? It started out incrementally with this, you know, we're going to do things right this time. We're going to make things better. We're going to rectify the wrongs. And people go for that because, you know, and, and what, what do we have to do on this earth but human righteousness because we can't force the hand of divine righteousness? Yeah, uh, um I, I, it does start this this way, and um, that's why there's also, I mean, what Tillich doesn't bring up, that, but, but that should be brought up in this connection, he brings it up tacitly, uh, but I'm thinking of R- René Girard and the whole scapegoating mechanism, you know, and that's, that's why the persecution of the Jews was rationalized as a step on the way to that higher justice. Uh, with all sorts of lies being told about the Jews, um, but also a lot of opportunistic profiteering on the on the uh, uh, treatment of the Jews as well. Uh, Tillich writes this: "You, my German friends, who hear these words and inwardly agree with me and acknowledge you sh- your share of the guilt and the fate of this time, you are the purest expression of the world's conscience." Your voice, your confession of complicity is fundamental to the shaping of the future Germany and future humanity. Only fools and hypocrites exclude themselves from this collective guilt, which is acknowledged by all sages and saints and prophets. Isn't that something, Tillich's version of the doctrine of original sin? Yeah. Well, and not not just original sin, but actual guilt incurred by the sheer fact of living. And as he says, the sages, saints, and prophets admit that whatever they're striving, they're going to be caught up in collective guilt and they admit it. And they're they're not ashamed. Well, maybe they're ashamed. They're not afraid to admit to it. Yeah, but I, I, again, I don't, don't mean to be uh, petty here, but uh, if you're a 16th century Lutheran, the guilt of original sin is real guilt. <laughs> and of course, they couldn't understand this. They just said it, asserted it. But I think here you have a way of of, of understanding how it is a social um, uh, interpretation of sinfulness that's being articulated, and the guilt of complicity is real. Uh, uh, he says he continues on this theme. Hitler was long seen coming. And many who inwardly despised National Socialism supported it because they all believed they could do business with it and then get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And thus they became guilty. 
And then he says, all Germans have heard of the horrible crimes that have taken place in the concentration camps. They have hardened their hearts and did nothing, and as a result made themselves culpable. Every German knew of the extermination campaign against the Jewish people. Everyone knew Jewish people about whom they felt sorry, but no protest arose. Not once did the churches take their place with the persecuted of the nation from which Christ came, and thus they all became culpable. No, none is righteous. All have, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No, not one is righteous. Mm. I, I was thinking when Luther makes a distinction between original guilt and actual guilt and saying original guilt is something you had no choice in. Your, your complicity is social and corporate, but not chosen. But I, I think there's also a social dimension he implies to actual guilt. And that, I think, is what Tillich is drawing out here. You aren't just guilty because by bad luck, you happen to be a German who was born into the first half of the 20th century. But he's naming here that even people who knew better became culpable, um, you know, by the the sheer fact of living there and just going along, refusing to say something. I, I think it's important that he calls out the corporate aspect of actual guilt. Very good. And, you know, and he also then, you know, wants to make sure everybody understands that this is, you know, Hannah Arendt famously said uh, at the conclusion of her meditation on the trial of Adolf Eichmann, um, uh, against a kind of a broad view of collective guilt uh, along these lines, Hannah Arendt said, if everyone is guilty, then no one is guilty. That, that this idea of collective guilt erases the distinction between per uh, perpetrator and victim. But Tillich is clear that that we have to speak about a relative innocence compared to those who he have dispersed us, robbed us, injured us, or slain us, we are innocent. Compared to the German rulers, torturers, their victims are innocent. They're German and non-German victims. A monstrous, a monstrous indictment from which no one can exonerate the perpetrators. This actually reminds me of uh, another uh, German neoliberal uh, Niebuhr who we talked about last year when he made his distinction between the universality of sin and the specificity of guilt. And he said you really have to keep both of those things in mind. All human beings are sinful without exception. But when we look at specific cases, we have to look at actual incurred guilt and not cover up the, you know, the, real, the real life distinction between a torturer and victim by saying, well, but you know, in the eyes of God, they're both sinners. <laughs> yeah, but in the eyes of God also, one is a torturer and one is not a torturer. That is a real meaningful distinction. One last uh, 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 quotation from Tillich on this problem before we move on. In 1943, he broadcasts, I am asking those who didn't like National Socialism, who were hostile to it for reasons of the spirit and humanism, and yet who took pleasure in their development of power. I am speaking to those who shut their ears to the misery of Hitler's victims in order to be able to see in it the instrument of German greatness. 
These sentiments are what made an effective resistance against the National Socialist Party impossible. They are what kept Hitler in power. These sentiments of a secret acquiescence and of unacknowledged pride over Hitler's power are what has brought the plagues of Egypt upon the German nation. That is the bond between ruler and nation. The crimes of the ruler are blamed on the nation because the nation is never without guilt when it puts up with the criminal as its leader. So that's why the death of the firstborn fell upon all the Egyptians, not just upon Pharaoh. I guess that's what he's thinking, isn't it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah, so what? another thing that um, Tillich spends a lot of time trying to do is is give a deeper analysis of what's going on in Nazism and, you know, always with the, the effort of trying to help Germans understand why they fell for it and also why it's not too late, in fact, very urgent to resist it right now. I think the one of the most interesting things here, I just had, incidentally, Sarah, watched a um, documentary on television about the Hitler Youth. And uh, it was really quite eye-opening about the uh, massive uh, re-education of German youth that occurred throughout the 1930s in order to prepare uh, the military that would go on the march in 1939. Uh, so Tillich comments about this. Education, which should convey the wealth of human experience and through it mold the human nature of the young generation turns into an implement of battle against all the great achievements of the past. It turns into an education against humanity, against the form, against the meaning of life. The Nazi book burnings were an attempt to stamp out critical thinking, repression, the eradication of thought, and of the critical spirit. That's one side of Nazi ed education by the way, that kind of should raise alarm bells for us about the uh, rise of cancel culture and the banning of books and the um, also the um, repudiation of the humanities in the classical sense of reading the great works of Western civilization and regarding all of that as passé Yes, and also the um, gender-critical retraining that is being uh, mainstreamed even in, in public schools and uh, criminalizing those who uh, object to it or don't want their kids to be exposed to it. Um, you know, I know this is a, a highly sensitive and explosive issue, but a lot of the, the book-banning movements have been uh, a, a not terribly wise or helpful attempt to uh, protect kids against this kind of um, gender ideology imposition on them. So there, there's, there's censorship um, instincts going all around, and it's probably because of a, a loss of a common vision of what's good here. Um, but I, I would like to suggest there's something in Tillich here that really struck me, and I think that is, is kind of at the, uh, the deeper core of the typical left-right or, you know, uh, woke alt-right polarizations we see in American culture, which, you know, is not our burden here today particularly. But, but Tillich says that the young German is a product of the machine age. 
Um, and then a little later, the young National Socialist is himself nothing but a part of a machine that has sacrificed his mind, soul, freedom, and humanity. You know, at this time, it would have still been the ascendancy of the Industrial Revolution and, like, actual physical machines made of metal had become a, a new sort of motif of efficiency and unity and cooperation. And so that that was the kind of metaphor that would have been very powerful in, in shaping young people. And machines don't live. Tillich will go on to talk about the death-centered culture of Nazism. I, I think I'm just going to, again, allude to this. We can't go into it very deeply here. But I think that very much what we are seeing today is the, the internet age. Age, the the hyper connected um, uh, identity always changing avatar algorithmic um, ways of being that have arisen with the digital age has become our dominant set of metaphors that you should be infinitely flexible have no permanent nature always be adapting yourself to the next trend and uh, even when I hear people speak about AI now you know which has become a really big thing I realized. Uh, what, what people say about AI is really them revealing what they think human nature is. It's I, don't, I don't think it's pretty rare to get a conversation that's actually about AI itself. It's really about what you think humans are. So I would just like to posit that a lot of the uh, explosive, apparently ideological stuff we have is actually imbibing into ourselves a, a digital or AI notion of humanity the way that I think Tillich is identifying a machine-centered way of understanding humanity in, in the time of the Hitler Youth. That's very intriguing, Sarah. I think you've just identified a topic for our next season. <laughs> yes, probably. Well, I, I think the, more, the broader point, though, is that uh, education is a battleground. And who controls education um, controls uh, the future of the nation. And so uh, Tillich is, as an educator, as someone who's made his living as an educator, is focusing in on the Nazi um, capture of the institutions of education, right? And that um, right, right. this has, has been precisely uh, for... Uh, what he calls uh, education for the tragic, for tragic heroism, education for death. Uh, their education for death and heroism, he says, is an education for the extinguishing of all personality and for the mechanization of all humanity. Right. Mechanization. So, right. There you go. Right. Right. Or the digitalization, I suppose we could say nowadays, or something like that. Then you know, he does talk a little bit. Let's move on a little bit. That he talks about the national socialism as being a crime against the child in the manger. This is from Christmas 1942. Uh, it's a crime against that which is most fragile and most profound in humanity the love that gives itself for another. And so he's pitting genuine uh, uh, Christianity against national socialism. He says national socialism has consciously and decisively placed itself on the side of those who persecuted the child in the manger. That is the messenger of love. Only the national socialists have advocated 
hatred, and ridiculed love. And then he says, if you don't believe me, read Hitler's Mein Kampf. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, and he he, deliver, he uh, explicitly alludes to King Herod, who was interested in killing children who did not fit in his uh, vision of the good for his own kingdom. Right. And then he, he, he really makes an apocalyptic either-or. There is no communion of those who bow before the child in the manger and those who call the blood of the Nordic race holy. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot celebrate Christmas and believe in National Socialism. You cannot serve Christ and the Antichrist. Yep. There, There is a parting of the ways. I think that a little bit here, Tillich's analysis is a little bit off base. Uh, he, um, he, I mentioned earlier that he interpreted Nazism as a powerful mythology of blood and soil. And I think that there's an element of truth in that. Um, he says, like, for example, uh, National Socialism brought a revival of the most ancient powers of prehistoric, long-subdued subdued urges and thoughts. And then, you know, he talks like a typical modern Cartesian. It was eminently directed toward the spirit, toward pure humanity, toward the dignity of the individual person. This enmity is ancient, as old as the nature from which the spirit has liberated itself. The powers of the most ancient past triumphed when Hitler gave power. Nature has conquered spirit. The subhuman has conquered the human. When the national socialism of fools and criminals obtained the weapons to persecute the spiritual and the human. It's a monster of primitive times, a bloody legend of antiquity. Yeah. I mean, the, the, what it comes down to then is that Tillich is arguing one progressive theology against another progressive theology, but both of them see, a, you know, a forward movement and, you know, desired improvements, ever greater liberation over time. And so Tillich's argument is like, no, no, Germans, you've hitched yourself to the wrong progress movements. You should get back to the real, true progress movement, right? I mean, that seems to be implicit there. I think that that would be a very um, kind of broad and a historic. I agree with that analysis, but I think you know to, to suspend our sympathy with this text and try to uh, step back and and make a larger reflection. After all, Tillich's speeches to wartime Nazi Germany didn't persuade anybody to do anything. <laughs> As you far know, as they, we know. They were, as far as we know, they were a failure. And uh, it's kind of important to ask why they were a failure. And I think, you know, here's a very broad reflection, is that in these speeches you see what a classical, traditional, 19th century, modern German Tillich is, who can't believe that the beloved country of Mozart and Beethoven and Mendelssohn and Kant and Hegel and Fichte. He can't believe that this, his Germany, has turned in this direction. And he's desperately trying to reassert the antecedent um, cultural synthesis of 
um, Germany and Christianity, the German version of Christendom. He's trying to reassert this against the Nazi monster. Yeah, that that's actually what I I wanted to bring up, and you know, um, I mentioned at the beginning, and I that was my my really powerful impression reading this book is as admiring as I was of so much of what Tillich did, you know, in the end, he he's basically saying true Germans come back to your true Germanness. It's it's still I don't know, it's still I understand, again, you have to recognize that this is a, a propaganda piece. But I think he really, like you said, believes in the true, holy, sanctified, emergent Germany that has become such a, a powerful, blessed civilizational force on the world. And should be a, a beacon of light to all the nations. And so he's he's saying, you know, come back to this. Don't you like that Germany better than the Germany that you've gotten? Um, and uh, it just seems to, well, I mean, again, this, this is extremely terrifying, but it begs the question, uh, which I think we all wonder again and again, how did such a, an eminently um, cultured nation as Germany that seemed to have it all it immolate itself in this incredible act of self-destruction. On some level, all of the uh, the historical arguments, like I mentioned, the Treaty of Versailles, there there seems to be some something missing in explaining how it could go so badly. And so a simple appeal to come back to the good old Germany that we know and love of, yeah, you know, Fichte, Kant, and Spätzle, it's just like not enough. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's it, it's very odd how in these radio broadcasts, that theme of, shall we say, uh, the, a, a German, a progressive, uh, what's the right word, a liberal German version of salvation history uh, stands side by side in Tillich's rhetoric with a much more apocalyptic interpretation of what has happened. Um and I think the tension between the two is not resolved in Tillich's own mind. So the two motifs appear side by side again and again. Yeah, I mean, I and I don't want to get anywhere anywhere near saying that because it's so cheap to say like we're we're living in these times now. Uh, you know, the, America's in in various kinds of trouble. It's not in Third Reich level trouble right now. But I think what what Tillich example shows us here is that both the appeal to progress. Like, let's get better. It's just in our grasp. If we just double down and try harder and get rid of the, the, the bad elements and retrain our youth, we will have the America we've always wanted. And the the uh, counterpoints of, no, no, let's get back to the great America of the past, the way it used to be. Let's, make, let's have that America again, where things were ideal and perfect. They're both deeply, deeply, deeply wrong. Yeah, and this is where Tillich starts intimating, a, a, I think, a profounder, that is to say, a more apocalyptic analysis. When he uh, he talks, you know, to sum up this whole idea of Nazi education, uh, how people were created um, through the Hitler Youth Movement, uh, whose every movement could be calculated who, if the right button were, was pushed, would kill without asking whom and why, and who, if another button is pushed, would go to their own death without asking and without hesitating, right? So that that's the critique of the education. Now Tillich then adds this. He doesn't say, let's go back to the good old humanist education 
right? Let's go back to the to the pre-Nazi great German Christian tradition. What he says here is, the Nazi puppeteers are themselves puppets. Behind them stand not human beings, but rather dark, sub, and superhuman forces by which they are driven. How strong they are as impersonal dark powers driven by a demonic will, destroying whatever steps in their, into their path, and in the end destroying themselves. These are the masks behind which the powers of destruction hide, puppets on which the darkest substrat of life draw, and which must, for that reason, turn all others into puppets. Wow. Yeah. Is That's dark. Powers and principalities. Yep. So, what then can we do? <laughs> <laughs> well, he, you know, I, let's draw, kind of draw this discussion towards an end, Sarah. Um, um, because Tillich wants to, uh, I guess maybe he even realizes that the appeal to the great German Christian tradition is not going to uh, inspire resistance within Germany that will stop the Nazi atrocity. Um, and it's not until 1943 after Stalingrad when the tide of war has turned for everyone to see and Tillich comments there, the German nation has begun days of mourning that will not end until the rebirth of Germany. And precisely for this reason, grief is not the end. Precisely for this reason, there is joy that comes, overcomes grief and hope that is able to sustain above the restlessness. You are mourning over Germany, so you say, after Stalingrad. But is that actually so? Is that actually necessary? Certainly Nazi Germany must perish, and on the smoke-stained walls of Stalingrad's ruins the inscription appeared in fiery letters, weighed, weighed, and found wanting. That's a quotation, of course, from the Book of Esther. He says that that applies to Nazi Germany, but does it also apply to Germany? Tillich makes a distinction. No, he says. Whoever is possessed by evil spirits suffers when higher powers free them. He is sad that the evil spirits have seized possession of him, but at the same time he is happy because the hour of deliverance has come. Now again, isn't that fascinating? Tillich wants to compare the sinful complicity of Germany to a person possessed by a demonic power. And he wants to interpret the mourning over the inevitable defeat militarily of the Nazi armies uh, to an exorcism. And of course, you know, that's, that's always an ambiguous appeal because uh, the devil made me do it, never got anybody off for their, their crimes. But I mean, it, it does, again, raise this rather terrifying question. Is, is um, knowledgeable collusion 
necessary to be possessed by a demonic force? Or can it just sneak up on you and overtake you? And only when you've been set free, do you realize what you've been involved in? Um, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, actually. I want to say that you have to collude, but only because that's the less alarming of the two options, not because I actually know it to be true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we can't, we can't possibly solve that problem right now, but let's just flag <laughs> it. I mean, that's a, it's a serious question. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, are you an innocent victim? The devil made me do it. Or are you a complicit in your own victimization? St. Paul's great question. Why do you desire your own subjugation? Yeah. You know, just to, to throw in a, a little side note from the Lutherans of Madagascar who have reflected extensively on this, they actually do distinguish between the complicit. So when they talk about exercising people who have been uh, witch doctors, I guess you'd call them, and they say these are people who deliberately invited in evil spirits in order to gain power. That's different from the exorcisms they have in church services for people they understand to be afflicted by demons, not with their desire or collusion, but because they've simply been preyed upon by a predator, a demonic predator. So just throwing that out there. Right. Yeah, well, that's that's worth a, a pursuing in the future, I think. Anyway, I mean, let's just recognize once again uh, Tillich's Lutheranism here. He, he says in this connection, the great ancient truth is that judgment is salvation when it is accepted as judgment. Now, this is from Luther's Freedom of the Christian, isn't it? That faith justifies because it justifies God in his judgment. So, in conclusion, um, Tillich, at the end of 1944, when he stopped, stopped uh, uh, broadcasting after a hundred speeches, looks back upon the broadcasts and says about them that they have been a continuous struggle for the liberation of the German people from the enslavement to the Nazi spirit, to fight the battle to break the Nazi spirit. The intent of these speeches, he says, is not to destroy, but to build up. They are spoken for Germany, not against Germany for Germany that can live freed of its corruptors and freed of the spirit of corruption that they have brought over the German people, period. Now, there, there again, you see this more, this more apocalyptic uh, interpretation of the Christ who breaks into the strong man's house to bind him up and to set his prisoners free. Though there is still a presumed substrate of the the German people, which is an intact actual thing in the world that is is worth preserving. And I mean, of course, there is such a thing as the German people, but there also isn't. And I think it's that that slippage or equivocation that is is part of the the long the long legacy that's very difficult to sort out in an era of you know nations and nation states and racial and ethnic thinking yeah and you and i both have contemporary german friends so we know about the terrible burden of this history even down to the second and third fourth generation 
post-war. And uh, one of my German friends um, of my age, when she learned uh, about the crimes of the Nazis, just uh, told me that she screamed at her parents. Why did you go along with this? Why did you do this? I mean, just the incomprehension um, and the burden of guilt. Um, I remember another time when the Germans who had been expelled from Slovakia uh, came back to the village we were living in, Sveti um, uh, for uh, 50 years after the war to commemorate 1995, to commemorate the peace and to make peace with the past. And I was talking for a very long time to a German man and uh, about the problem of German guilt. And uh, he just said to me wearily, isn't it time to be done with this? And that was in the 90s. Yeah, that was in the 1990s. Yeah, yeah. I, I just I'll add one little story. I have a, a a German colleague and friend who must be late 60s or 70, and um, he told me that his parents had been enthusiastic members of the Hitler Youth. They they believed the promises and they believed in the hope for Germany, and then they saw the truth of it. Um, but they ended up on the eastern side of the division of Germany. And he said, actually, they learned their lesson from it. And right from the beginning, they were resistors to the communist regime of the GDR and were able to maintain distance and an independent conscience and remained active and faithful in the church and were so clear about what they believed at that point that actually the, the communist functionaries basically left them alone. You know, it, it had consequences. He was limited where he could go to school and so forth, but they were not imprisoned or persecuted directly because uh, the bureaucrats of communism realized that they couldn't mess with these people because they knew they knew who they were and they knew what they believed and what they didn't believe. So that's that's one hope for for learning from the painful experience of being complicit in something evil. Right. Um, and so we have these, uh, you know, a couple of thoughts about what you've said. Of course, this is the great problem. Is Christian salvation the redemption of the creation? Or is it its execution and new creation? Or is it somehow both? That's the, I mean that put it, to put it all very abstractly that that's one of the deep problems in the Christian doctrine of salvation. We're not going to solve that here. Let's just flag it. <laughs> uh, secondly, we have this. We should point out that Tillich was seen by the Allied authorities at the end of these speeches to be altogether too pro-German. <laughs> I know. Right? That is so unbelievable. That shocked me. It shouldn't have, but yeah. Yeah. So the FBI kept a file on him forever after because he was pro... I mean, how you could be so thick-headed, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. He, he Well, but because he believed in the redemption of the creation theologically. That's what he's arguing for. But the way he argues for it, as we've pointed out, is this ambiguity between the great Christian tradition, the German Christian Reformation tradition. Uh, doesn't it have the integrity and power to stand up against the Nazi monster? 
And we've seen that the answer to this question is no, it didn't. It did not. And where does that leave a person like Tillich after these 100 broadcasts to Nazi Germany? And I think we're going to be entering into that question. Um, what did the failure of the Western Christian tradition do to Tillich and his theology in the 1950s when we talk about this um, in the next podcast? All right. Well, folks, that, that is your preview for the next time. If this was good Tillich, I'm already calling it. Next time is bad Tillich. <laughs> I'm going to try to redeem him a little bit, sir. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.